uninterested, a young man sat in the pastor's office and listened as the pastor explained the gospel to him. After the pastor was finished, the young man said, I just can't believe all that stuff. So the pastor asked him, what would it take for you to believe? The young man said, I would believe if God came down and stood in front of me and told me himself. The pastor replied, my friend, he already has come down. He came down 2,000 years ago and lived among us. If you don't believe that, then I have nothing better to offer you. One thing we've got to understand and one thing we've got to realize is that our teaching, our understanding of the doctrine of the incarnation is of utmost importance. When I say the word incarnation, what I mean is that Jesus came in the flesh. Now, the word incarnation is not found in the Bible, but you can see it all throughout the Scriptures. Just like the word Trinity is not found within the Bible either, but you can see it playing itself all throughout the Scriptures as well. But the word incarnation comes from the Latin, and it means incaro, which means in flesh. If you think about it, very similar to the Spanish word, carne, meaning meat. So Jesus ultimately came in the human flesh form. And that's what we're going to be looking at and talking about today. Now this doctrine, this teaching is of utmost importance because it has made and formed many other religions for people who did not understand this teaching, this doctrine. If you think about it, the Muslims, if you think about it, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they'll agree that Jesus actually existed, but then if you all of a sudden begin to equate him to God, that's where they have a big problem. And so that's why we got to make sure we understand what this means and how important it is. Now, we've been going through this series of Be Present. And Brian's been talking about us being present in the life of the church and how men need to be present uh, in their families' lives and how we need to be present in our friends' lives. And then uh, last week, I know Wesley came and he talked about the church being present in the community as he was looking at the planning of King's Church in Washington, D.C. And so this week, I want to take a little bit different spin on it. I want to talk about Christ being present in our lives and him being present in our lives through the Incarnation. And how important that is. And not only did he come physically, as we talked about here in the story 2,000 years ago, but also how he's still present in our lives today through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we want to look at and try to understand a little bit better today. So turn with me, if you will, to, chat, to John chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verse 14. It's on page 886, page 886 of your pew Bible. It's that black Bible there in front of you. If you do not own a Bible then you can take that one home. It's yours as we try to continue to penetrate the culture here at Perimeter Road. John chapter 1, verse 14. We're just going to be looking at one verse today. I'm going to be using some other verses to help to explain this verse, but we're just going to be looking at this one. And I think this verse right here is probably one of the most important in understanding the incarnation. There are many others, but this is one that is very important. It says here in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm going to read it to you one more time. It's the Word of God is so very important. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The first thing that I want you to realize and the first point that I want to make today that you've got to understand is that Jesus became human. Now think about that with me just for a second. Meditate on that for a second. Marinate that for a second, okay, in your hearts and in your souls. Jesus became human. What does it say here? It says, and the word became flesh. Now, a question that may jump out at you automatically is, how do you know the word there is Jesus? Well, let's look a little bit above where you were just reading in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and they help to explain it a little bit more. It says there, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we move a few verses down in John chapter 1, verse 14, and what does it say? And the Word did what? It became flesh. In caro, in the flesh. So we're seeing here that this Word is Jesus. And then later on in this book, you'll see where John all of a sudden begins to refer to this word as Jesus Christ. He's wanting to use this terminology of the word to point us back to the Old Testament and making some connections there, which we'll do a little bit later on. But he's wanting to show us that. And then he moves on from there to mention his name as Jesus Christ over and over within his gospel. And so Jesus became human. He came in the flesh. And what you need to understand about that and realize about that is the fact that he was fully God and he was fully man. He was two natures, one person, perfectly as only God can be. He was as human as human could be. He had hair just like I have hair on my hands right here. He had eyeballs just like I have eyeballs. If there was cameras back in the day, you could have taken a picture of him. He sweated just like I sweat. He cried tears just like we all cry tears. He had feelings. He was tempted. The only difference in all of this was what? That he was without sin. And so there we read that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it really quickly. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he encompassed the human world in every way that he could, except for the fact that he was without sin. He was not some orb that sort of floated around on this earth or some, or some spirit that just sort of uh, floated or walked around as well, telling us all these prophecies and acting as a king and a priest or anything like that. Ultimately, he was a human being. And he encompassed that every way that he could except for the sin nature aspect of it. But then also, he was fully God. And he encompassed that in every way that he could as well. He kept all the omnis, 
right? Omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, all of those. And he encompassed those things within this body, this human body, this form. And he did those things perfectly without sin. And it's amazing to think for a second that God the Father would send God the Son to humble himself and to become this form, this human form, with all of its struggles, with all the pain, with all the things that he had to experience. And why did he do it? He did, for, he did it for us and ultimately for the glory of God. But you've got to understand that without the incarnation, guess what? We have no hope. If Jesus Christ did not come in the form of a human being, we are done. We are sinners in need of a Savior, and we have found that Savior in Jesus Christ, and the fact that he came in the form of a man. And now the question may come up in your mind as I say this, would say this as well, as you say, well, he is without sin. Well, how is that possible? How does he not have that sin nature? Because we know that through scriptures that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And so the Bible must be contradicting itself in some way, which means the Bible, in a sense, must be false, but that's not true either. So how do we work that out? Well, one thing you've got to understand is that he was born of a virgin, Right? And we know that sin comes through who? It came through who? That sin in nature. It came through Adam. Not Eve. Even though we like to push the blame on Eve a lot of times, it ultimately came through Adam. It says in Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through th sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And so therefore, since Jesus was born through the virgin, Mary, and was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, and his father ultimately is God the Father, then therefore he is without sin. And so Jesus became human. Now an interesting thing about that statement as well is we see in Genesis 3.15 there's going to be one man that defeats the sin, the enmity that comes into the world as well, right? That crushes the head of the serpent with his heel. And obviously we know that prophecy is fulfilled later on through the man of Jesus Christ, which is an amazing and awesome thing to see and to know as well. So Jesus became human and the word became flesh. The second thing that we're going to see in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus lived among us. So not only did he become human, but he also lived among us. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice here it doesn't use the word live. It doesn't use the word hung out with. It doesn't use the word and Jesus was with us. It uses the word dwelt. And when you see that word in the Greek, it is this word for pitching a tent. That's literally what it means. He pitched a tent among us. So think about this with me just for a second. What does that look like? Well, some of you may have done that recently. Some of you may have done that this past week. 
where you went out into nature, you went and you decided you wanted to be closer to nature, and so you threw up a tent. It's a good time to do that right now because the weather is good. You're not going to sweat to death or freeze to death. And so therefore, now you pitched a tent. Well, what do you think of when you're pitching a tent? It's a temporary shelter, isn't it? It's not something that's going to be there for a long period of time. And so there we see that Jesus came on this earth for 33 years, and then ultimately he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he sent the power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, he was here in the human form for a temporary amount of time. But then also another thing, another observation to make about a tent is the fact that it's not a structure like most kings, especially if his stature would have came, right? He didn't have some castle with high walls and a moat around it to where he's trying to keep people out. Instead, in pitching a tent, he's being and living amongst the people. From the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, he dwelt among his people. Here's this person who is fully God that is coming and dwelling among these people. It doesn't, didn't matter if they had leprosy. It didn't matter what problems they may have had. It didn't matter if they were sinners as they all were. He still was willing to dwell among them. What an amazing thing to think about if you really truly understand who God really is. That he would humble himself and come and dwell among his wretched, sinful people. And also this word dwell is a word that means tabernacle. And it's pointing us back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And a tabernacle, it was the meeting place where we got to meet with God. Well, isn't that amazing that all of a sudden now here John is using this word dwell and he's using it in relation to Jesus Christ coming down in the form of a man. And now those of us that put our trust and our faith in Christ and in Christ alone, guess what we get to do? We get to meet with God again through the tabernacle of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, and amen. And that's an amazing thing that he would humble himself and that he would dwell, that he would tabernacle among us. So Jesus became human. Jesus lived among us. It says here, just as the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt with his people and manifested his glory, so Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Just as the tabernacle was at the center of Israel's camp, so Christ is to be this, at the center of the church. Just as sacrifices and worship are offered at the tabernacle, so Jesus is our complete and final sacrifice. And we have access to God through him. Every aspect of the tabernacle speaks of Christ. The bronze altar for sacrifice and the bronze laver for cleansing point to Christ. The table of showbread in the holy place speaks of Christ, the living bread. The golden lampstand points, reminds us of Christ making intercession for us. And the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant made of wood covered with gold, points to two natures of Christ. On the top of the Ark was the mercy seat where the blood of Christ, the fulfillment of God's law for us. The jar of manna pointing to Christ, our sustenance. And Aaron's rod that budded, pointing to Jesus as the branch who was raised from the dead and gives new life to those who were dead in their sins. Jesus, our tabernacle, dwelt among us. All throughout 
the Old Testament, we see this pointing, this coming of a Savior. And he is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing picture to be able to go back and to look and to see all throughout the pages where Jesus is being talked about and prophesied. So Jesus became human. Jesus lived among us. The third point that I want to make is that Jesus revealed his glory. It says here, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. This word seen, when it says seen his glory, in the Greek it means to gaze intently. It means to study as though you are in a lab. And when I read that, it made me think of the times uh, growing up uh, when I used to work in a lab uh, at my dad's office. Who My dad was a veterinarian. And uh, ultimately, we would take stool samples and we would put them on this rectangle piece of glass. And then I would take another little square piece of glass and I would lay on top of it. And I would have to take this big high-powered microscope and I would have to study this field of view, this square piece of glass, and I would have to study it up and down. And I wasn't looking for little wiggly worms on there. I was looking for eggs. I was looking for maybe it was whipworms or roundworms or tapeworms. Now I was having to study this piece of square glass very intently, just like in a lab, right? And I was making sure that there were no eggs And if I found some, I had to count how many were in this field of view, and I'd have to put this down on a sheet of paper, and that would help us to know how to treat that certain type of worm. And so when it says here, have you seen his glory, you're gazing intently at it. You were looking at it as though you were studying something in a lab. You're taking time with it. You're meditating on it. And you think of this word glory as we talked about two or three months ago when I preached. There's this heaviness that is there. There's this awesomeness that is there. Something that's greater than we talked about Disney World, right? Even though we struggle to believe that at times. And so we're looking at that glory and we're studying that glory and we're gazing intently at that glory and we're saying, man, how awesome and amazing Christ really is. But you know what's even crazier than that is the fact that when we're looking at Jesus Christ, ultimately we are getting a picture, a reflection of who God is as well. It says in John 14, 9, it says, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has what? Seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So God the Father loved us so much that he would send us a direct reflection, a direct picture of himself through his son, Jesus Christ. So we get to see a picture of the Father all the time. Now some of you may be saying, well, we don't have Jesus walking around with us like he was over 2,000 years ago. You're right. He's not physically walking around with us on this earth. But at the same time, they gave us something called the Word of God that shows who God is. And we have the ability to go and to look at that and to study that and to see that and to gaze intently upon that and to begin to understand who God is. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
How much time are you spending in this Word? How much time are you spending gazing intently at this book? People come up to me all the time and say, well, Jesus didn't, he's not speaking to me. Well, guess what? He speaks to you through what? His Word. You want to know Jesus' plan for your life? Read His Word. Gaze intently at it. Study it as though you were in a lab. It's worth every amount of time that you would ever put into it. Trust me on that. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And yet there's still days that I struggle at getting into this world. Because I have given in to the lies and the schemes of Satan. And I have chosen on my own not to spend the time in it. Because it's my fault, right, that I haven't spent the time with it. Don't blame it on Eve. Don't blame it on Adam. It's your fault. It's your sin. Own it. Take some time in this word. Don't push the blame on someone else for not being in it. Gaze intently at it. Study it as though it were in a lab. So Jesus became human. Jesus lived among us. And Jesus revealed his glory. Jesus was not invisible, nor was he obscure. When you look at Jesus, you see the face of God. God wants to be seen and to be known in his Son. When you hear Jesus teach, you hear God teach. When you come to experience Jesus, you experience God. In Jesus, we see God. The fourth point that I want to make, and the final point that I want to make, is that Jesus invites us to himself. It says here, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Now, how is Jesus full of grace and truth? Well, think about this for a second. What is grace? Grace is a free gift. We do absolutely nothing to deserve that gift at all. And there's no amount of works that we can do to earn it or to gain it in any way. So God willingly, the Father, sent God the Son to be the propitiation, to be the wrath bearer for our sins. And he did that freely. Nothing that we did caused him to do that because we cannot earn that gift of grace. When Jesus took on the human form, when he humbled himself and he was willing to go through the pain and the trauma and all the things that would have gone about with that, that was an act of grace on God's part. He was full of grace. That he would get up on the cross and that he would die the most horrific death possible in our place. He ultimately died the death that we should have died because of our sinfulness. But then also here it says he was full of truth. Now all throughout your community groups you have been learning about the covenants and how God always keeps his promises no matter how many times we have failed miserably, no matter what prophet, priest, or king has failed or whoever he always keeps his promises. And ultimately, God is a God of truth. 
And he has written those promises and those truths down in his book. And these were and will be forever true. And nothing's ever going to come and say that this is not true. And you've got to stand firm on that. These two words explain why Jesus stepped out coming to the earth. Because he was full of grace. He died for you and me while we were yet sinners. And we can come just as we are to him. We don't have to clean ourselves up first because he was full of truth. He was able to pay for our sins completely. You can come in complete confidence knowing that he will keep his promises. When he promises a complete pardon for your sins, guess what? He means it. I want to end with this story here. And this is a story, uh, uh, it's actually an article by Ed Leap. He was a doctor, he was a physician in Greenville, South Carolina. And he wrote this on Monday, December 15th, 2008. And he says, over and over again, I have asked suicidal or depressed patients what is pushing them to the brink. Their answer is so consistent that it must have a deeper meaning than we realize. I'm no good, they tell me. Sometimes they are hearing voices, so I ask what the voices say. That I am worthless, that I should die. The problem is perennial. As long as humans have existed, we have sensed that we were not something that we ought to be. As long as we have been wounded by family, friends, or strangers, we have doubted our worth. The cure for all of the fractured suffering of the human heart, all the terror we visit upon one another, all the guilt we bear with bent spines our whole lives, all the horrible condemning voices is the fact of grace. Grace, I propose, is the greatest concept in human history. This season, we celebrate the birth of the author of grace. He came to earth worthless and was born into oppression and domination. He came to a place and people broken and in the end was broken himself. The author of grace was told by many that he was no good, that he was a liar, that he was useless, deluded and mad. Finally, he received the ultimate rejection and insult and paid with his life. He was broken for the broken and hated for the hated. He was despised and rejected so that the despised and rejected would have a hero and comforter. And yet, in all of it, he announced the cure of grace. He told us what we already knew, that we were broken and needed repair. He told us the repair would be free for the taking, that we were all loved in spite of the voices in our heads, the words of our enemies, and the cruelties of our families and friends. In bringing of grace, he changed the world. He said that we could never do enough to be truly good, but we could share his goodness and accept the gift he offered. In that fell swoop, he negated any other contingent therapy for the misery of humanity. No wealth or position could cure our loneliness. No rule or law could overcome our weakness. No plan or good deed could earn our healing. Only the gift he brought. Only himself. What you must understand and realize is that without God coming in the incarnation, in the flesh, we have no hope. All throughout the Old Testament, people came before him and they failed miserably. The Jews, they wanted a king, so God gave them a king and all of those kings failed miserably. Whether it was Saul who had no heart for God, Solomon who had a half heart for God, or David who had a whole heart for God, they all failed miserably. 
Doesn't matter if it was the prophet Elijah, he failed miserably. Doesn't matter if it was the priest Aaron, he failed miserably. And all of them pointed to a greater prophet, a greater king, a greater priest that was to come, and his name was Jesus. And he humbled himself, and he came in the form of man to save us wretched sinners from what we deserved. And that was death. To save us from hell, eternity separated from God. So without the incarnation, we have no hope. Without the incarnation, we get exactly what we deserve. So may you never forget the enfleshing of Jesus Christ and the fact that he actually came in the form of a human being and in the fact that he was actually God, two natures in one person of Jesus Christ. And he encompassed those things perfectly and yet he did it without sin. And may you be reminded of that this season as you continue to be present in the lives of the people and of the family that you're a part of. As you leave this room here today and you're present in your coworkers' lives, you're present in your family's lives, you're present in your friends' lives, can you remember the fact that God would send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to be present in your life, you wretched sinner? And once you did nothing to do to deserve in any way, form, or fashion, he gave it to you as a gift of grace. And not only did he give you salvific grace, but he gave you common grace each and every day, which is the breath in your lungs. Why he keeps us alive, I have no, no reason to know. Why would he do that? He created us. But we've rejected him so many times. He has the right to do whatever he desires, and yet he gave us the gift of grace through his son, Jesus Christ. May we never forget that, Perimeter Road Baptist Church. And may you hang your hat on that each and every day. And may you fight against that with any Mormon or Muslim or whoever comes in your path. Because they've fed and they've eaten from the book of lies. And they need to know about the grace that you believe in. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen.